Good morning. Well, I do have some good news that I want to share with you today. Football season is here. That's good news, right, Bobby? Bobby, I know, I'm not seeing a reaction from you. <laughs> All right, very good. Yeah, we were uh, watching uh, the preseason game yesterday, and it was midway in the second quarter. Colette stood up and said, and she, she gets into the games. Uh, she's pretty intense. Um, and uh, she got up in the middle of the second quarter and said, well, I'm going to go get some groceries now. And, uh, and, yeah, the game pretty much was over at that moment, but, but uh, it's that season. I want, to, uh, I want to show you a passage of Scripture we're going to start off with here today that I, I have always found inspirational for as long as I can remember. And, and this passage is talking about a, a little incident that happened during a very busy time in Jesus's life. It was during the days of his popularity, and so there were a lot of demands on his time, and, uh, and, and that's kind of what was going down here. It's found in Mark's gospel, the tail end of the third chapter, and here's a couple of verses of it, what it says. It says, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. All right, so it, it looks, you know, pretty benign right now. It's just, you know, his mom and his half-brothers that are coming to, to see him. But uh, the location that Jesus is teaching in is jam-packed with people, and they're not able to get in. So word kind of gets passed from one person to another and eventually gets in there to Jesus. Now, to appreciate, you know, the passage, you really need to back up about 10 or 11 verses because it frames the context a lot better in regards to what is happening because the reality of the matter is, even though the word isn't used, um, what is happening here, the word we would use today, this was an intervention. His mom and his brothers, they were coming to basically take him into custody uh, and to restrain him. These are all some of the, the terminology that's used uh, about 10 or 11 verses earlier because Jesus was so busy during this period of time that he was skipping meals, he wasn't eating and stuff like that. And so for his own good, they went to kind of rescue him from himself you know, basically, and to get him away from all of that so he can eat a square meal and, and everything. Okay, so that's why they're there. So the message gets into Jesus that his mom and his half-brothers are outside, and, but he, this is the really convicting part. This is what happens then. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I, that, that's a big statement 
That, and you kind of just got to let it soak in for a moment because it communicates volumes as far as the way our Lord looks at things. Whoever does the will of God is his brother and sister and mother. I want that to be me. I want to be part of his family. And he spelled it out right here in regards to what it involves to be part of his family. And I know you want that to be you. You want to be part of his family as well. In, in some of my studies recently, I came across uh, someone who made this statement. And I don't know if they were inspired by that particular passage, but it does sound like they were inspired by something similar as that passage. But they, they said this, life's greatest discovery is to find the will of God. Life's greatest achievement is to do the will of God. And in view of that passage that I just read, the words that Jesus had shared there as to how he sees things in regards to who is close to him, who is family to him, um, yeah, that would be life's greatest achievement because that'd be one and the same as being a part of our Lord's family. Now what I want to do is I want to show you another passage. And this passage is going to stand in stark contrast to the, the one in uh, um, Mark chapter 3. This is toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, you, you see the similarity. They're both talking about God's will. You look at this one, and you, you might categorize this as a scary verse. And I would agree, it does seem to be a scary verse. It, he goes on and explains a little bit more. He says, on that day, and whenever the definite article the or that is used in reference to a day in Scripture, is talking about the second coming of Christ, judgment day, all of that, you know. It's so, so like on this occasion, he doesn't even use the word judgment day. He just says that day. And everyone knew what he was talking about. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? So they're going to claim in a variety of ways an affiliation that they have with Jesus, that they've done stuff that uh, should put a smile on his face. But then look at the last sentence. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. And the whole statement, I never knew you, that's reflecting back to verse 21, what he was saying there. That's pretty scary. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that I hope I have a connection with. This is one of those passages I hope there is not that connection, you know, in regards to the way I'm approaching living my life. We started a new series last Sunday. It's a five-part series, and Kurt kicked it off. Uh, and it's a series that is all focused on finding God's will. And... You know, I was trying to think what would be the best way to be, open up the message to really emphasize the importance 
of the topic, the subject matter that we're dealing with. And, and I quickly decided that, well, I cannot improve, obviously, uh, on what Scripture says. And so that's why I wanted to begin the, the message with those two passages from Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 7 because they send a very loud and clear message. And that message is, this is important stuff that we're talking about. So, you know, if you're thinking about maybe dozing off, save that next Sunday. You can maybe do that during the sermon next week. So, but not, not today's message, okay? In this series, we're going to be talking about several key aspects of discerning God's will. And like today's message, next week's and the week after, the focus is rifling in on one particular aspect of defining God's will. And then at the very end of the series, Kurt will kind of bring it all together in the last uh, message of the series. And so today I get uh, uh, the enjoyment of being able to talk about this aspect of God's will to talk about the Word of God. I've got a verse that would be good for all of us in here to memorize, uh, both because it's a short verse, but also because uh, it gets right to the point of what it is we're talking about today. It's Psalm 119, verse 105. This comes from the longest chapter that is found in the Bible, and you find this statement. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That has always meant a lot to me because when I first read that, um, I was still living at home. I was 17 years old, and, uh, and one of the favorite things that I like to do when I had some spare time, I started, I was dating Colette at that time, so I, I guess I didn't have a lot of spare time, but, uh, but when I did have some spare time, you know, I'd like to go out and do one of the things I did all through my growing up years, and that is go fishing. And from our house in the country, you know, you could go east, and there were farm ponds that I knew the owners of. There was farm ponds in the north. There were farm ponds in the west. There wasn't anything, you know, south of us. But, but I could almost go any direction, and I could go walking out in the field. And one of the things that I would do, because I knew that more times than not, fish bite the best at the break of day, so you need to get there before the sun rises, get there really early, or if they're fishing really, or they're biting really well in the evening, you know, it's like, don't pack up too early. You stay there, and, uh, but then by the time you're closing up your tackle box and heading back to the truck um, or to the house, as the case might be, um, um, it's probably going to be dark, and if it's cloudy, it's going to be really dark, and so I got used to oftentimes carrying a flashlight with me, because uh, you just needed to see the path that you were on. Oftentimes, these ponds, they were kind of hidden behind some trees. That's why they were good fishing holes, because a lot of people didn't even know they were there. And there would be a trail, a cow path, that you would follow. Now, if you're going to a cow path, as that picture shows, during daylight hours, there's no problem with it. You want to stay on the, do the, the cow path because if you're going through the tall grass, you are greatly increasing the likelihood you're going to have a batch of chiggers that you're going to be dealing with later. And so you don't walk through tall grass on purpose. And uh, so, so you'd be walking on the path. But if it was dark by the time you picked up your tackle box and the fish and the poles and all that stuff and you started walking back on the path, 
Uh, and if the, the, the moon was hidden by some clouds, uh, it could really be dark. And you really needed a flashlight. The flashlight's purpose wasn't to shine all the way to the house or the truck and to see the entire path that you're going on. The flashlight's purpose was to see the next three or four steps, to see where you were walking. And that's what I feel like this passage when it says, a lamp to my feet, that's what it's communicating, a light to my path. It's not talking about being able to see the entire journey at one glance. It's talking about the next two, three, or four steps because cattle are notorious for leaving little presents on their paths that they walk. And apparently we need to spruce up the sermon a little bit, and we're going to add a little background music while I'm up here. So there might be a couple of dancers coming out too, so. All right. Uh, I owe you guys one back there. Um, so anyway, you, you, you want to see the cow pies. These aren't the kind of pies you'll add Cool Whip to. These are the kind of pies you want to avoid because you step in one of these, guess what you're tracking in your truck? Guess what you're going to track in your house? A whole lot of stink. And so that's why you got a flashlight so you can see the steps and see what to avoid as you're taking each step. Well, that's what um, the psalm writer is basically saying. The Word of God it serves that purpose, to help guide our feet the next step, the next two, three, four steps. You know, there's numerous passages that directly reference how a certain behavior or a certain decision is God's will. It specifically uses that terminology, God's will, right in the verse. And those verses are invaluable because, I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's right there, and it's saying, hey, look at me. I am God's will. And it, it does get your attention. But, but the thing is that even the passages that don't directly use those words, God's will, even, even if they don't use those words, they're really important in the process of helping us to discern God's will. From the Bible, we learn how to love like God loves. From the Bible, we learn to do what God does. From the Bible, we learn to value what God values. The more we learn from God through his word, the better we will know him. And the more we know him, the more we will understand about his will. And that's why every verse of scripture has value in helping us in regards to our subject that we're dealing with today. You and I, we don't need handwriting in the sky, though at times we maybe have felt like that. We feel like we need a Gideon's fleece or something or other. We need something to, to communicate. But we really don't need that to discover God's will. A whole bunch of it can be found right in front of us in black and white and red, for those of you that have red letter editions of the Bible. All right, so this is what I want you to know about the Bible. I think this is a great verse that frames it well. It's what Paul said in his second letter to the young preacher, Timothy, in chapter 3 of that letter. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
There's a whole lot found in those two verses. It says all scripture is God-breathed. And so what's being communicated, one of the things that we take from that passage is that scripture originated from God. The Bible originated from God. This is what sets the Bible apart from all other books in existence. One time when Colette and I went out east on a vacation, we went um, to the Library of Congress and we stepped in to at least the front room, as I recall, of the Library of Congress. We didn't go any further than that, but we peeked through some windows and we saw further in. But um, based on what I've researched, uh, it says that the Library of Congress is the largest library in the world. There are some 840 miles of bookshelves in the Library of Congress. I mean, this thing is, is mammoth. Even in view of all that, this book is unique. It's unique from all of the rest. And it's for this very reason, because it originated from God. It came from God. It was written over a span of time, as you've heard said many times from this very stage. It, It was written over a span of time of some 1,600 years by 40 different writers from three different continents. And yet its message fits together from start to finish as though it were written by one author. And that's because it was written by one author, and that author is God. When when you think about the Bible being compiled from the writings of some 1,600 years, 40 different writers, you would think that it would contain a hodgepodge of confusing, disjointed details. But instead, what you find is continuity all the way through. There is one central driving message And the reason why is because it is God-breathed. It comes from God. Now understand, this is not saying, this verse in 2 Timothy, it is not saying that the Bible contains the Word of God. That is not what that statement is saying. In fact, I stand up here today and I do not believe the Bible contains the Word of God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And there is a huge difference between the two. If the Bible simply contains God's word, then the dilemma would seem to be rather obvious. How do we go about discerning the parts of it that is the word of God and the parts that are not? How do we slide some to this this side and some to that side? Well, the fact is it would be arbitrary decisions and and, uh, it it would be a very faulty way of trying to decide, okay, now where where am I going to place my faith in what's being stated here? The Bible is the Word of God because all Scripture is God-breathed, just like that verse says. Now, another thing that we see in that passage right after it says that it is God-breathed, it says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the second thing we see there is that it is for our benefit. The Bible is for our benefit. That's been God's intention all along, that it would be beneficial to us. Some translations use the word useful, like the one that I'm using here today. Other ones maybe use the word profitable. It's still conveying the same 
truth. It says that it can thoroughly equip us to live the life that God intends for us to live. It is not God's intention that we live our lives down on this level. God has always intended that we live our lives on this level. And that's why when Jesus first appeared on the scene, he was saying stuff like this. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That has always been God's intention. That we live life to the max. That we live with a fullness of life. And that's what the word represents. It's there to help us in that very, in that very thing. It's not that God wants to squeeze the fun out of our lives. It's not that he's some form of a celestial killjoy, you know, though he, some have accused him of that. that. That's not it at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. God has always wanted us to be able to experience life to its uttermost, the way that he intended for it to be. As a matter of fact, you look in the teachings of the Bible and the content that is there, and, and that's what you'll see. You'll see other reminders, other passages that are conveying that it's for our benefit. I think about um, a passage in Isaiah that is one of my favorite verses in Isaiah, although you know, I kind of feel like sometimes it's not maybe even on the radar for others. Um, but for good reason. Isaiah's got some real gems in it. There's a lot of messianic prophecies and stuff. And so people can really go toward um, certain passages like Isaiah's calling in chapter 6 or the messianic, you know, chapters, chapters 52 to 54. You know, and, and, and those are really excellent passages of Scripture. But sometimes... This one gets overlooked. Isaiah 48, verses 17 and 18. It says, this is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Just states it right out there, lays it right out there, that, that God is teaching us what is best for us. It's for our own good. It's for our best. And if only we had paid attention to it, our peace would be like a river. You know the difference between a river and a creek? One of the, the differences I think that this passage is actually you know, touching on um, creek, or uh, we used to call them cricks, but anyway, you know what, what we're talking about here. A crick, you know, doesn't have as much water going through it, and you can tell a lot of times when you're approaching a crick, even when there's some brush or something hiding it from you as you're walking up even 30 feet, 20 feet away, because you can hear it, and, and it's because a crick is shallower, and there's rocks you know, there and tree stumps, you know, stuff like that. And so the water hits it and you got a lot more turbulence, right? And the water kind of splashes. The water gets past those obstacles, but yet, you know, it's noticeable both in looking at it and in listening to it. But yet when you approach a river, you know, I remember going mushroom hunting. Um, we fished some as a kid in the river, but but uh, down there, that was good mushroom hunting grounds. 
and, uh, and sometimes we'd be down there, and uh, um, Dad would try to teach me things like what a rattlesnake rattle sounds like. When you hear that, you need to stop. And, uh, um, but also the sound of the river. And it was like, man, that's hard sometimes. You can have some brush in front of you, and you can be like 12 feet away from the river edge, and you don't even know it because it's so quiet. And when you see it, it can be so smooth. Now, the reality of the matter is there's still rocks out there. There's tree stumps out there. There's probably car tires, in some cases cars. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's out there in the river. But because of the depth of the river, you know, you don't see all the turbulence. You see a calmness and a quietness. And I think that's what's being touched on here. If only we had paid attention, our peace would be like a river. There would be that inner calm. Not saying that, well, you wouldn't experience any adversity in life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there's peace even in the midst of that. And then he says, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And most of us have spent at least a little bit of time on a beach somewhere. And you know the waves, they never stop. They just keep coming and coming. There's no end to the waves. And I've told you before that the word righteousness, I know, is one of those 50-cent words in Scripture. But the most basic understanding of the word righteousness is that of being in a right relationship with God. Being in a right relationship with God, and there is no end to that. And that's, that's, what, that's what Isaiah is relaying here. If only we paid attention to God's word, which was given to us for our benefit, then there would be this calmness in our life when we encounter adversity and, and our relationship with the Lord would be thriving. It would just be growing and growing and growing, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop. Many people want to know what God's plan is for their lives. And I think that's true of most everyone in here. We want to know what God's plan is for our lives. But um, unfortunately, sometimes in that desire, we overlook the obvious parts of God's plan. What is spelled out, and it's right in front of us. God is pretty clear about what he's wanting to see in our life. Some of the statements, I mean, it's right there. It says it is God's will. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says it is God's will that you should be. Now, by this time, we ought to be perking up, sitting up straight in our seat because, man, we want to get this because it's saying this is God's will. What is it? That we be sanctified, that we should avoid sexual immorality. And so right now we know. Sexual immorality is not in God's will. Now, how exactly do you find that? Well, keep reading. Keep reading in Scripture, and it will be defined for you what sexual immorality looks like and what you, you and I both should be avoiding. This is part of God's will. It flat out states it right there in that verse. Here's another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. says, be thankful in all circumstances. So whatever it is that you're experiencing right now, whether it's a pleasant time or whether it's a painful time, whether it's a mountaintop moment or a valley that you're going through, be thankful in any and all of those circumstances, situations, 
Why? For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So there we have another verse that flat out says it. This is God's will. Peter, in his first letter, he wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 2. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, you know, there, there are people that stand opposed to Christ and Christianity, and they're going to do whatever they can do to undermine it um, and, and to, to destroy it. Um, and if it becomes apparent that, that you claim to be a Christian, that you are a follower of Christ, and you're trying to live from him, then that puts you in, in the path of the shots that they're taking. And so you're going to experience some shots too. They're going to take, take aim at you as well. And some of the things they're going to say are, are going to be hurtful as they try to tear you down with some of their critical remarks that they make. Well, the way that you respond, if you're looking for God's will in this, isn't that you give them some of their own medicine. You fire back. Fight fire with fire. Oh, you hurt me. Well, let me say this about you. And no, that's not God's will. What is God's will? God's will is you silence their ignorant talk by your good deeds, by your good works. That is what God wants to see in your life. See, it's pretty clear stuff. When you start looking at some of these verses, there's really not much mystery behind it all. Paul said this. He rendezvoused with the elders at Ephesus. He had invested a couple of years of his life in starting this, this new church, and then he went back to some of his missionary travels. But uh, he had planted Timothy there uh, to continue on with some of that work and wrote a couple letters to Timothy. Well, on this occasion, he rendezvoused with the elders of the church. And here's something he said to them. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul is basically saying that the teachings that I did for those years that I was there in the church and the writings that to Timothy that, you know, pertaining to your church and, and how he was to lead your church, this is the will of God. But we need to step back and broaden this a little more. How much of the New Testament has writings from Paul? Well, when you start looking at it, you start seeing that there are, what, 12 or 13 of the books of the New Testament. Well, there's only a grand total of 27 books in the New Testament. So almost half of the books of the New Testament, you know, have teachings from Paul. And then you look in the book of Acts, and that wasn't written by Paul, but yet there are some of his teachings found there. So, you know, here, here what he's saying all of a sudden, now every one of those verses in his writings, you know, becomes a, uh, an enriched understanding on our part of what the will of God is. See, this is all scripture, and Paul was the part that he was conveying that God was inspiring him. To deliver, that's what he's referencing in this verse, but uh, but it's all of Scripture is God breathed. It's not just useful in making the big decisions in life. 
You know, and we all eventually encounter big decisions. Some of you right now might be faced with a rather big one that you're dealing with right now, and you're trying to seek God's will. What does God want you to do in that? And, and, and that's good. That's healthy that, that that's the way we approach it, and we're looking for his will. But the reality is that Scripture is communicating that even in the small decisions, in the day-to-day things that we encounter— the actions and reactions that fill our daily lives that we are to be looking for God's will in that. And so much of that is contained right here in the way that we approach living our life. Now, last Sunday, Kurt made a statement, and I'm going to be repeating and emphasizing this statement. And just for the record, I had this written in my notes for a couple of weeks. And so I'm thinking... I'm thinking he snuck in my desk and he was reading some of my notes. So, um, so Paul or Paul, uh, Kurt did a good job reminding you of what I was going to say today. Okay. <laughs> However that works, but here it is. God's will is never contrary to God's word. And boy, you need to latch onto that. And if you didn't catch that last Sunday, catch it today. God's will is never contrary to God's word. You're not going to find yourself at some particular point in time where you are doing God's will and then all of a sudden you run across something in the scripture and it's just being like, whoa, wait a minute, what was I doing all that time? This is condemning what I was doing. No, not if you were doing God's will because God's will is never contrary. It's never contradicted in scripture. It's always reinforced. In scripture. Look at something Jesus said at the very tail end of his Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of teachings in those three chapters, but this is the way Jesus chose to wrap up the longest recorded sermon of Jesus that's found in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, so many of you are familiar with this, and it's good to be reminded of it. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. So that's the good side of the story. Here's the sad part of the story. But, he goes on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So you have two very uh, different results. Basically, what Jesus is trying to communicate at the tail end of his sermon is that his word should serve as a foundation for our lives. This is what we ought to be. He's not giving them tips on how to build a shed or how to build the the house that they're going to be living in. He's, He's talking to them about building a life. You need to build your life on his word. I think and I think in the process of communicating all of that, part of what he was saying is that whichever way you build, 
whether you're building on sand or whether you're building on the rock-solid foundation of his word, you know, whichever, you know, approach you take, you're going to encounter some adversity in life. That's the one thing that they, that they both have in common, experiencing ups and downs, adversity, struggles. It may be employment. It may be, you know, periods of time that it's, you're really struggling to make ends meet financially. It may be health-related stuff, having heard the news regarding yourself or a loved one, um, you know, about some cancer or something or other, the last thing you wanted to hear coming from their mouth. And, and it may be that kind of adversity. It, it might be um, some type of interpersonal conflict, you know, with a spouse or with a coworker, but having a struggle. The fact is that kind of stuff is going to happen. We're all going to encounter some of that kind of stuff to one degree or another. But the point that Jesus is making is that you're going to be better suited to weather those adversities if your life is being established on a rock-solid foundation, and that is the Word of God, that we're living on, on that basis in, in not just hearing but living His Word. We won't be immune to problems, but we will be better able to weather those and come out the other side. Okay, so with that thought in mind, how do we get started in regards to pursuing, you know, the will of God when it comes to uh, the role that the Bible, you know, plays in that? Well, it, it all starts with the fact that you need to get a good Bible. And you know what a good Bible is, right? A good Bible is a Bible you use. That's what a good Bible is. And today, I've chose to use the NIV for most of my stuff, the 1984 edition of the New International Version. But I know we got a, a pretty good following, healthy following in here of the New American Standard Bible. Um, we also have some people with the English Standard Version. Kurt likes to use the New Living Translation um, frequently. Uh, and, and there's multiple other translations. You know, which one is the good one? Yeah. All right, well, which is good? A study Bible or just a, a cross-reference Bible? Which is good? A bonded leather Bible or a genuine leather? Or a hardback Bible? And of course, some of you are like, come on, get with the times. An electronic Bible, all right, yeah. <laughs> which one's good? It's the one you use. That's the one that is good, that, that we, need to be, we need to be using it. And, and that means we need to be committed to sticking our nose in it, to reading it. And one of the things that I have found that has been definitely beneficial for me that kind of put me years ago over the hump as far as being consistent with reading the Bible every year is making myself accountable to others. And even as I look out over this crowd, you know, I see a number of faces that, that are either a part of my small group that I'm leading right now or were a part of the last one that I led, uh, the small group entitled Through the Bible. And, you know, and I lay it out there to them at the very beginning. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I tell them. Some of you that have been around here for numbers of years, you've heard me in January make that statement from up front. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. 
I do that not because I'm trying to brag or something, but it's because I know it's going to make me accountable to people. People are going to come up to me and they're going to say, where are you at in your reading right now? You know, and, and, you know, am I going to say, oh, I forgot all about that. You know, it's like, no, I don't want to say that. You know, so being accountable is beneficial. So it's not that you have to make a public service announcement, get on the PA system at work and say, hey, everybody, I'm reading the Bible this year. Uh, I mean, you can try that. I don't know how that will go over where you work. But, but uh, make yourself accountable to your spouse, to, to a good friend, to, to some folks, brothers and sisters in Christ. Make yourself accountable to others, and it will greatly increase the likelihood that you'll follow through in reading through God's Word. So it all starts, though, with, with having a good Bible. Secondly, start obeying what you already know to be His will. And I touched on this a little bit. The vast majority of the time, in fact, I would say oh, well over 90% of the time, the things that we deal with in our life, the day-to-day things, it's not a problem as to whether or not we have any understanding of God's will. The vast majority of the stuff we deal with in our life, we know what God's will is. Start with that, living his will, you know, in, in the interactions, in the way you treat your children, and, and maybe the estranged you know, brother or sister you have you haven't talked to in years. What is God's will? What does God's word say about that? Let's start being faithful with what we already know to be God's will. Yeah, there may be a few things that, that you're like, man, I really don't know what God wants me to do in this area. I get that. All of us encounter some of those sooner or later in our life. But what about the things you already know about? Are you following through on that? You know, and that's what we need to do. We need to be following through on that. All right, so what I want to do in wrapping this up is I want to end by sharing something with you that I find very convicting. And it has something to do with the verse that we started in the early part of our message with. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I didn't get this initially, but over time, over a few years, you know, uh, it, it was driven home to me and I researched it more and, and it was confirmed that in ancient Hebrew times, when a name is repeated in a statement, it represents an expression of, of intimacy, of closeness, a, a solid relationship. And when you look in the Bible, you actually see this to be the case. You see way back in Genesis 22 when Abraham was up on Mount Moriah and he built that altar and he bound his son Isaac and he put him up there and he picked up that knife and, you know, and God stopped him, right? But what were the first words spoken? Abraham, Abraham. And then the instruction that followed it. When you read in Genesis chapter 46, you're reading about Jacob and God is communicating a message to Jacob. And what are the first words spoken? Jacob, Jacob. And then the Lord goes on and communicates more. When Moses 
was intrigued by this bush that was burning in Exodus chapter 3. And he went to check it out and he saw it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And then God spoke to him through this burning bush. And what were the first words spoken? Moses, Moses. And then all the rest of that followed. When Samuel was just a little guy and his mom Hannah, you know, dedicated him to the Lord's service, left him with the high priest Eli at the tabernacle, and Samuel was sleeping there in the tabernacle, and the Lord spoke to him. What were the first words that the Lord said? Samuel, Samuel. When you look in Luke chapter 10, as Jesus and his disciples, they all, they all showed up at Mary and Martha's house. And I don't know if someone delivered a message they sent a telegram or what happened, but here they are. They're there. They're going to spend the night, and Martha, she's just working herself up, you know, trying to get food and, and bedding and all this stuff all ready. Meanwhile, her sister Mary is just sitting there at the feet of Jesus, not doing anything. And Martha finally just stops and says, Jesus, tell my lazy sister to get to work. Well, it's a paraphrase, but. <laughs> and what does Jesus say to Martha? He says, Martha, Martha. And then he goes on and gives her some keen insight. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is trying to warn Simon Peter about the temptation that's going to be coming to him. And he starts that off by saying, Simon, Simon. I mean, there is example after example after example of this found in the Bible. But here we see it. It's not coming from the Lord in this case. It's coming from people like us. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's almost like Jesus is saying, why do you act like you're so close to me? Why do you act like we got this deep relationship with one another and yet you're not giving any effort to live God's will in your life? The point is, that's a contradiction. That is a contradiction. You don't have a deep relationship with me if you're not making any attempt to be living it in your daily lives. Now, I don't know about you if that's convicting, but I find that very convicting. And let me, one last passage, since we opened with this, we'll close with it. Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We're going to have our time of communion now. And if you didn't get a communion cup, there's some in some baskets in the corner up here and in those areas you can help yourself. And during this time of communion, it's, it's a time that, that we reflect on what Jesus did. The price tag of our salvation. He went to the cross on our behalf making it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins. So the bread reminds us of his body. The cup reminds us of his blood. 
But one of the things the Bible also teaches about this time is it is to be a time of self-examination. And so I want to encourage you today to examine your heart, examine your life in view of passages like that that I closed the message out with. Are you part of his family? Are you living like it? Are you building your life on his teachings? Because that is the will of God. Examine your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to be able to gather together in your name and to spend time in worship, to spend time in fellowship, to spend time in in, in contemplating the teaching found in your word. And Lord, I pray that you're glorified by that. And I pray that through your spirit, you, you will do a good work and we'll be benefited from it that we'll grow in our walk, not just in what happens on Sunday morning, but what happens all week long, that you might be pleased as from start to finish in our lives, we pursue your will in the big things and in the little things. Might you be glorified. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.